Good morning. What a great morning to be together today, and we are glad that you are here to, to worship and to celebrate uh, the resurrection of Christ with us this morning. Uh, that song, I think, tells the gospel story uh, about as beautifully and succinctly as I think you can in lyrical form. Uh, and it also touches on a lot of the concepts that we want to talk about this morning. And yes, this is children's church time. We're getting away from the back. I knew there was something I forgot. Uh, our kids, this is the time our kids can go to children's church. So if you've got uh, kids in that uh, age range, they're headed out now. So three through first grade. I think we've kind of bumped it up to second. Uh, we got some second graders that go there now too. So not quite that high. Negotiating stops at second. <laughs> but I won't be too boring this morning, maybe. So we'll see. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, what I love about that song is that it captures well this narrative uh, that our souls are born into. That we are born into a story of sin and rebellion and exiles. And that is the nature um, and the narrative of our flesh. But we are also born into a story of redemption, of grace and resurrection. A story powerful enough to eradicate from our lives the effects and the power of the other story. And this is the nature and narrative of the spirit. And so we have a choice when it comes to which narrative we are going to give creative control over our lives. Who are we going to give the pen and let write our story? To what are we going to give our souls? And what will we love with all of our souls? Uh, so on Sunday mornings, we've been going through a series talking about the, what Jesus calls the most important command or the first command. And talking about uh, what it means to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so this morning as we celebrate the resurrection, I want us to consider alongside that um, what the story of Jesus and the story of Jesus' resurrection has to do with loving God with all of our soul. And so we're going to go back uh, to the beginning and continue our discussion about Adam and Eve uh, that we began last week. We kind of talked about Adam and Eve last week in conjunction with loving God with all of our mind. And we talked about how Adam and Eve being tempted by the fruit and the ways in which Satan does that was to get them to question God's character and God's motive. And how when they do that, if Satan can get them to question God's character and God's motive, he can get them to see the world differently. And in doing so, he gets them to eat from the, the fruit from the tree that they aren't supposed to touch. And so we're going to go back this morning and read a little bit of what we read last week uh, and then keep going a little farther. So we're going to be in Genesis 3 this morning. It's going to be on the screen. Uh, Genesis 3. And as you're turning or clicking there, if you want to just want to follow along, I also want to mention this morning... Uh, that today is, is in many ways, in, especially in a Christian sense, in the way that we celebrate in our culture, uh, a day of, of celebration. We say things like celebrating the resurrection. We celebrate Easter. Uh, but I am reminded today that, that days of celebration aren't days of celebration for everyone. And I think we were reminded of that in a big way this morning. Uh, if you saw the news this morning in Sri Lanka this morning, and their 
Easter gatherings at churches in Sri Lanka, there were eight different explosions uh, across an area of Sri Lanka that killed more than 200 people um, in various parts of a large metropolitan area in Sri Lanka. Um, And so a day that we celebrate as a day of resurrection will now be remembered by that country as a day of death and mourning. Um, That's the story our souls are born into. Um, And it is all the more reason uh, to express and to hold on to this hope that we have in Christ. Uh, So uh, before we get into Genesis this morning, I want to pray for us and pray for all those that may not see today as a day of celebration. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for your love for us. We're grateful for your love expressed to us in redeeming our story from sin and death through Jesus. And today, this morning, as we gather to celebrate, we pray for those who are mourning. We pray for those who find celebrating difficult, whether that is because of ongoing turmoil or pain in their own lives that has been going on for years, decades, or whether it is because of of new and fresh attacks, bombings, killings, heartache, whatever it may be, God. So we pray for our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka who are mourning this morning, and we pray for our brothers and sisters amongst us who are mourning. Help us to see, God, and to not lose sight of your hope as we live in a world that struggles to move past hate and division and turmoil and brokenness. Open our eyes, our spirits, our souls to your word this morning, God. Lead us in your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as I said, we're going to pick up in Genesis 3. I'm going to pick up in verse 4. And as I said before this, uh, this is when Satan through the serpent has convinced them uh, to, to try to eat the fruit. So we're going to kind of pick up in that part of the story here in chapter 3, verse 4. The serpent says, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is after he's asked uh, Eve about this, the the fruit uh, in the garden. And Eve says, well, no, actually, he just said we can't eat from one tree. And so this is Satan's response to that through the serpent. So then continuing verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Uh, Lots of fascinating stuff here, I think. But let's start here this morning. 
uh, the serpent doesn't really lie to Adam and Eve. Uh, The serpent manipulates the truth. And this is one of Satan's greatest tricks to find just enough truth to get you to cling to, but twist it in a way that causes you to see it differently than the way that God intends. Uh, So the serpent says, your eyes will be opened. And so they ate fruit and their eyes were opened. So far, so good. We're going along just fine, right? Uh, Let's keep going, though. The serpent says, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And so they ate the fruit, their eyes were opened, and they realized they were naked. Uh, What Satan said was going to happen initially happens, but it has a different outcome than they thought it might. You see, increased knowledge doesn't always lead us exactly where we think it will. And the payoff of sin never matches up to the promise of sin. Sin often makes bold claims that sound great as promises. Uh, Do this and you'll be like God. Do this and you will find true happiness. Do this and you will find purpose. Do this and you will be cured of all your anxiety and fear and worry. Do this and you'll have security and wealth. Do this on and on and on. Sin goes and sin promises. These are the promises made by sin and they're promises that we continue to buy into. And I think we continue to struggle with sin in part because we convince ourselves that we can find elsewhere what God promises can only be found in him. And this is how Satan convinces us to continue question God's word, God's character, God's motive by saying, yeah, you can get that going this direction. The payoff of sin never lives up to what was promised. Adam and Eve's eyes were, in fact, open, but it did not make them like God, at least not in the way that they were led to believe that it would. It caused them to realize that they were naked. And in the voice translation, it words this sentence this way. For the first time, they sensed their vulnerability and rushed to hide their bodies. Uh, Because this is interesting to me because Adam and Eve didn't hide because they were naked. They hid because they realized they were naked. And that may not sound like an important designation, but I think there's an important difference between the two of those things. Um, Because I think it's important because sin has caused us, sin has caused them to look at something that was good and see it as something that they should be ashamed of or try to cover up. And this is what sin does to us. It affects our vision. It gives us a different lens to see the world through than what God intended. It causes us to see things designed to be good and to see them as something else. The sin of lust, for instance, causes us to see another person as something like an object instead of a person. Gossip invites us to see an opportunity to lift up as an opportunity to hold down. Racism uh, invites us to see people of other skin colors as less than, while pride invites us to see ourselves as better than. Sin opens our eyes to be sure, but it opens our eyes to flawed thinking that runs counter to the ways in which God has called us to see ourselves, each other, and the world. And this, our souls are born into. This is the lens that sin in the flesh gives us to see the world. 
And so Adam and Eve now realize that they are fully exposed before God and everything. And that now becomes the defining aspect of their relationship to God. It is now the new story that is written over their lives. And they go about the work of trying to cover that up. Because the payoff of sin has not quite lived up to the promise. And so I want you to imagine something with me this morning. Uh, I want you to imagine that everywhere you go, the nature of your sin is, is draped over you like clothing, like a label. And everywhere you go, people notice your worst sins, your insecurities, your mistakes, your bad habits. And those are draped over you like large labels on your clothing everywhere you go. What would be our response? <laughs> uh, I'm willing to bet even the great spread in the fellowship hall wouldn't have drugged as many of us here this morning as it did. <laughs> Not even a breakfast from Zoe and friends could, could entice uh, a room full of us wearing the nature and labels of our sins and insecurities and shame. Because the response to those things is to hide. It's what Adam and Eve do, and it's what we continue to do as people. Uh, Adam and Eve begin the work of trying to cover themselves up with fig leaves, and we've been trying to cover ourselves up with fig leaves ever since. And what we are continually minded of is that there are, not, there are not fig leaves big enough to cover up our sin or to make it go away. We keep trying to find them, but they're not there. For Adam and Eve, their nakedness is now a label marking their sin. And they quickly find this out, that fig leaves are no match for sin. And so Adam finally reveals himself to God by saying, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid, again, here's this phrase, because I was naked. Notice he doesn't say, I was afraid because I messed up. I was afraid because I thought you'd be angry. I was afraid because now we're in uncharted waters and waters and I don't know what to do. No, he says, I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And God tells him, who told you you were naked? <laughs> in other words, dude, you've been naked the whole time. <laughs> like, I don't know if you realize this. I didn't make you with clothing. Uh, you've been naked for the whole time. Something had to shift in your perspective. Someone had to tell you that you were naked in order for you to see that you were naked. This idea had to be put in your head from somewhere else. So who was it? Who told you that you were naked? You see, shame and the negative self-imagery that accompanies it are byproducts of the man's fall, not God's original creative design. As one writer put it, shame doesn't produce holiness. Shame produces Hiding. And so after realizing their nakedness, Adam and Eve hide and begin to cover themselves up. We continue to do the same things today, attempting the difficult feat of hiding from each other and the impossible feat of hiding from God. But this, luckily, is where the second narrative comes into play. Because the good news is that Jesus doesn't cover up sin. Jesus obliterates sin. And through his death and resurrection, as the song that we sing this morning says, the death, uh, the sting of death and of sin has been completely removed through the resurrection of Jesus. The beauty of Easter is that the resurrection speaks to a new hope, a new story that is written over our lives with words of a living hope. 
The empty tomb provides proof that sin has been defeated once and for all. The antidote to the ramifications of sin wasn't bigger and better fig leaves. No, we needed a new story. And the resurrection of Christ is our new story. This is the story our souls are born into when we choose to clothe ourselves in Christ through the waters of baptism instead of choosing to cover ourselves with more and more fig leaves. It's the story that delivers us from the shame and regret and the burden of sin. It's the story that compels us to leave our sinful nature and live instead through our spiritual nature. It's the story that shines light into the darkness of the world and the darkness of our own lives. It's a story that brings healing, wholeness, and life where once existed sickness and brokenness and death. It's the story our souls are born into through Christ. I think a lot of times when we talk about the soul in a religious context, we often talk about it as something that is almost completely disconnected from who we are as a person, from our physical selves. Uh, We think about it maybe in terms of our salvation or what will continue on after our bodies are dead, almost as if it's this sort of separate entity from who and what we are uh, as physical beings and people. And so when thinking about loving God with all of our soul, then I think we might be tempted to relegate loving God with our soul to something like trusting him with our salvation. Uh, And certainly that would be a part of it. It would not be inaccurate to say that. But it doesn't fully embody everything that I think Jesus is getting at when he encourages us to love God with all of our soul. Uh, It wasn't what the Shema uh, that this command comes from in the Old Testament was getting at when in the Old Testament they thought about loving God with all of their souls. The Israelites to whom this command was originally given uh, had a very different idea of soul and what a soul was, uh, as did the people in Jesus's day. In Greek, the word literally means the breath of life. Uh, In fact, the word is translated uh, often as life throughout Scripture instead of as soul. And so to talk about one's soul was to talk about one's true self, one's essence, one's life, the very nature of who you are as a person. Uh, And there would have been an aspect of this that was connected to life after death, um, but it also had a lot to do with who you were Uh, in this world and in this body. And I think that connects with how we use the term soul outside of a religious context. Uh, For instance, we apply the word soul to things like soul food, which when we say that, what we really mean is something that connects with something deeper within me. It's something that, that brings me back home, perhaps, or it's something that connects with a deeper part of who I am. When I was in, I can't remember, it was like fifth or sixth grade. That was when the book Chicken Soup for the Soul was really popular. And I had a teacher that loved Chicken Soup for the Soul. She started, she would read us one of those stories every day in class because she thought it was, it was something we needed to know. It was good for our soul. And what we mean by that is it's something good for us just at the core of who we are. It's good for our spirit. It is rejuvenating to ourselves uh, in the way that chicken soup brings our our health back when we are sick. I think this kind of helps us to think about soul in the way maybe that Jesus wants us to see it. And so loving God with all of our soul then means devoting who I am as a person completely to God. 
which means recognizing that God, through Christ, is my life. He is my new story. He is the one in whom I'm choosing to live, and the narrative that I want my life to be about is Christ. Paul said it this way. He said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's a pretty bold claim. That's one of those scriptures that we read a lot and just kind of read over. But think about what Paul is saying there. I am devoting my life, my soul, to God in such a way that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live in faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So there's almost this circular language here of, I recognize that God's love for me brought Jesus and that Jesus gave himself for me out of his love for me. And because of that, uh, my response to that is to love him with all that I am and choose to give up my life for him in return. There's this circular nature to what Paul is talking about. And I think that we can also love God with all of our life, with all of our soul, by getting to a point where we are able to make the same claim as Paul, that I no longer live, but instead it is Christ that lives in me. And so I want us to think about a couple of images this morning to maybe kind of help us think about this concept. Uh, How many of you had or have these in school? Remember eating from these? Yeah? Okay. Um, This is a lunch tray. We've got a picture of it up there. I think sometimes we are tempted to have a lunch tray mentality in life. Uh, Meaning that if we're not careful, we can start to think that that this box is my religious, my spiritual life. Uh, This compartment is my home life. This is work. This is hobbies. This is something else. And this is where the utensils go. (laughs) Um, And so we can divide up life into different compartments and none of them have to touch. I can even be one person in this context and I can be one person over here. And if none of them touch, it's okay. And if we have this, this type of mentality in life, then loving God with my soul, um, it can be completely disconnected from everything else that I go through in life. Loving God with my soul only contain, pertains to the religious part of it. It can only pertain to my soul after I die. This, this idea uh, hinders our way of loving God with our soul in the way that Jesus talks about it, and I think the way that Scripture talks about it. Um, Instead, I think it would help us to have a compartmentless plate mentality when it comes to life. This one's Christmas-themed. The one up here is not. Um, I can remember when I was a kid, when I was a kid, we would have, we called them dinner on the grounds. Who called them dinner on the grounds? We call them church potlucks sometimes. I don't know if it says something about where you grew up as to whether you call it potlucks or dinner on the grounds, but we had dinner on the grounds. I hated seeing these things come out at dinner on the grounds. You know why? Because everything's going to touch everything else. <laughs> and some of you are okay with that, and that is wrong. <laughs> um, I remember one specific experience at dinner on the grounds where my dad is one of those wrong people. And so we had these plates at one specific dinner on the ground, and my dad's just like piling stuff up on top of each other. And we get to the table, my dad's eating something, and he's like, oh, this is pretty good. And I said, oh, what's pretty good? Because we didn't have many things that were very good at church potlucks. <laughs> um, I said, what's pretty good? And he said, I don't really know. Everything's just kind of mixed together. But whatever I got on my fork, it was good. 
It was a jarring experience. <laughs> like, that's just, there are some things you should never see your dad do, and that's one of them. Pile everything on top of each other at a church potluck. It's just, it's wrong. Um, and so, as detrimental as this is to my thoughts when it comes to eating, I think this is the, the mentality of life that loving God with all our soul calls us to see it as. That everything is one compartment. That God isn't a box in the lunch tray. God is the whole plate. And if I see God as the whole plate, then it informs who I am in all of my roles and responsibilities. It informs how I go about my tasks. It informs who I am as a husband, uh, a dad, a brother, a friend, uh, a minister, whatever it is. That then becomes the dominant story that my life is told through when God is the whole plate, not a compartment in the tray. And I think this is the mindset that we see in Scripture. This mindset of a, a lunch tray mentality that we can sometimes have is completely backwards to how people uh, hearing Jesus say this for the first time would have heard it. To love something with all of your soul meant that you gave your life to it. It was the whole plate. Uh, I think we can see this in some of the scriptures uh, that, again, sometimes uh, translate the word as soul, either life or soul. So, for instance, there's a verse in Philippians. It's Philippians 2.30, where Paul is talking about a guy named Epaphroditus. And in the NIV, it says, He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. But the word life there is the same word for soul. And if that verse was translated, he risked his soul to help me, we would hear that very differently. That would have a very different connotation. But it was this idea that, that in their context, they were willing, there were people who were willing, willing to risk everything that they were for the sake of Christ. That Christ was their life. And so life then becomes to look like a compartmentless plate. That God isn't a box on the tray. He's the whole plate. That balance in your life doesn't become rationing your time well between spiritual practices and other things. That balance is about approaching all of life with a mindset that Christ is my life. And if that sounds a little all-encompassing, it is. <laughs> and that's the point. And it's why Jesus is recorded multiple times in the Gospels as saying something like, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the Gospel will save it. At some point in my discipleship journey, then, I have to make the decision that the path Jesus calls me to is actually the better story. That the promises of sin, no matter how verbose, will never pay off. And the resurrection offers us an assurance of hope that no other story can offer. A living hope ushered in by a Savior that the grave couldn't hold. Praise be to God, this is our story. Please stand with us. Jesus is my 
stay standing. We're going to pray our prayer of confession as we prepare to take communion together this morning. But before we do that, I just want to briefly say, if you're here this morning and you want to make Christ's story your story, uh, share that with someone you trust. Share it with me today. Um, and, and, and don't let an opportunity go by uh, for you if, if, if that's something that you have made a decision for in your life, that you want Christ's story to be your story. Uh, we're going to remember Christ and his sacrifice for us now through communion. And, and we do that by praying our prayer of confession together. So I'll pray the parts in white and together we will pray the parts in yellow. Father, we confess to each other and to you, our creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of Christ. We often seek out the easiest paths, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable or paths of self-centeredness. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of righteousness. We confess that we have not loved you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and with all our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of light. 
Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of peace. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. Amen. You may be seated.